Welcome to the Clear Admit MBA Admissions Podcast. I'm Graham Richmond, and this is your Wiretaps for Monday, December 11th, 2023. For more than 100 years, Emory University's Goizueta Business School has been a training ground for principal leaders and a laboratory for powerful insights. Whether you're looking to accelerate your career or make a career pivot, Emory's one-year and two-year full-time MBA programs prepare you for a lifetime of career confidence. Learn more about Emory's top 20 MBA with top five career outcomes, offering world-class academics and small-by-design classes delivered in a dynamic global city. More at emory.biz slash clearadmit. I'm joined by Alex Brown from Cornwall, England. Alex, how are things going this week? Very good. Thank you, Graham. Man, I need a break after all the chaos that ensued last week on the wires on our site. I mean, we had, I I don't even, the list of schools is long and the number of posts and comments and questions we were getting on the site, it was just pretty insane. So is there anything left? Like, are we done or is there more this week? Yeah, no, there's more this week. I mean, (laughs) Wharton is is a big player this week. Kellogg, that'll be a big big deal this week too. Um, side Sloan um, is, is another one so that's three big hitters um, out of the M7 right there um, and yeah McCombs Anderson um, Keenan Flagler Foster amongst the others um, that wow. have been releasing decisions this upcoming week so these last last week this week are, are two huge huge weeks I mean last week we saw Harvard um, Stanford we saw Tuck we saw Haas McCombs uh, sorry uh, McDonough Darden Goyz yeah. out Tepper, um, Yale. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on yeah. and on. Uh, yeah. Fuqua, Ross, Johnson. Um, yeah. It's a good thing we rebuilt the website over the summer, huh? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's, uh, it's been great to see all that traffic. Um, and yeah, everyone's kind of enjoying using the wires to share their news. Uh, for once, we have no events this week. Um, which is great. <laughs> it's been a little while. We will have some events coming up in late January. We'll get back into the swing of things. We're doing a, a real humans event where we'll gather some students. Uh, so I, I don't have any more details on that yet, but that's forthcoming late January. Um, and then stay tuned. We tend to do events in, in, you know, in the winter months as well. Um, we did run a really good admission SIP that hopefully applies to no one that is tuned in, but it's called Dealing with Round One Rejection. Uh, and so if you are in that boat where you didn't get good news out of a school last week or this week or you know, any of your Round One applications, there's some really good advice in there about how to kind of assess and reboot and move forward, right? So um, we have some good advice there that you should read on the site. We also caught up with our good friend, Bruce Delmonico from Yale School of Management to do an admissions director Q&A on the website. And I wanted to share something he said. Now, we, we asked them lots of questions. This is kind of a formula, like each admissions director at all the top schools fill out all these you know answers to questions that we have. And one of the questions is about you know, writing essays. And since some of our listeners are probably working on their round two application essays, um, you remember Yale has a pick one of three choices kind of essay. So I just wanted to share what Bruce said, because I thought he gave some really good advice. He said, regardless of what topic you choose, the most important aspect of the essay to us is that you describe in detail the behaviors that demonstrate support for that topic. We care most about how you've approached this thing that matters deeply to you. Remember, the goal is not to stand out or be unique. The goal is to be genuine and sincere. We find that the most compelling essays are the ones that share what is truly most important to you. So use that as your guide in choosing what to write about. Don't try to guess what we're looking for or what you think we want to hear. 
And then he says, I would also note that you do not need to connect your essay to the MBA degree. You don't need to explain how the topic you choose supports why you want to get an MBA, either in general or at Yale. We ask those questions elsewhere in the applications process. So don't spend your limited words on those areas here. And of course, as always, remember to proofread. And there's an explanation point at the end of that, <laughs> proofread. So Alex, what do you make of Bruce's comments? Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. He, he's obviously, I mean, we know he's been in the industry um, lots and lots of years, a really strong um, advocate for, 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 for the degree, for Yale. Um, and yeah, his, his advice, I think, is outstanding. Yeah, he is a terrific guy, one of my favorites in this. I mean, there's so many great people working in this industry, but I've known Bruce for many, many years. We've been to a couple of ball games together. So no, he's great. And this was terrific advice. And I was really happy that he, you know, took the time in the middle of their, you know, round one stuff to write this up for our site. So that was great. Of course, I uh, taught we, him everything, Graham. Yeah, that's right. He was in your training. I remember you used to do training for GMAC teaching new admissions officers. I forgot. <laughs> um, and then I, we've I got, think he skipped yeah. my class. That's why he's doing very well. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is there's just been a lot of stuff on the site, so I'm going to kind of zip through, but we did um, catch up with six students at ESE Business School in Barcelona. So that's part of our Real Humans series, so you can read about that. And we did the same thing at Vanderbilt Owen. So if you're applying to either of those schools, obviously go read those. Um, Columbia Business School published their class profile. Um, for the class that's already now, you know, about halfway into their first year, there are 900 students that they admitted across their J term and, and um, traditional August start date, which is actually a bit more than the number of students they had last year at 844. So they actually grew the size of their student body. With that said, application volume was down. So they were down 5% overall. Um, they had 5,895 applications, um, 3.5 GPA, 730 GMAT. So no big news there. Those are the kinds of numbers we see at very top schools. The GMAT range for the entire class was 610 to 790. But I thought this was kind of interesting. The middle 80% was 700 to 760. Um, so, you know, 10% are above 760 and 10% are below 700. So that tells you a little bit about, you know, the level of competition. They did not share any of their GRE statistics. I thought that was a little bit odd, but I didn't see anything on that. So um, other than that, 44% women, 47% international. Uh, the women is kind of unchanged. International actually came down a little bit from 51% last year. So that's kind of Columbia's current student body for their, the, I guess it's what is that, the class of 25, right? So any thoughts, Alex? No, I mean, it, it sounds like they, they've done very well, especially as we know last season, application volumes were down. We're not hearing the same for this season, just so we, we want to be clear on that. Um but, but yeah, no, this sounds um, 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 very good on the part of Columbia. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that international student um, numbers are quite high, but it also doesn't surprise me that they're, um, they're, they're nearly at gender parity. Um, because, you know, New York presents really sort of um, good opportunities for, um, um, you, know, you know, both you know, bo both genders, but also those that are going to business school with partners, because obviously the, there's plenty of opportunity for for work um, and, and, and partner activity um, in New York City. So, 
So yeah, these numbers don't surprise me at all. Yeah, you know, one thing I want to mention is, so they were down 5% last year in application volume. And I'm seeing all these articles on, you know, some of the big media outlets, whether it's Business Week or PNQ. I mean, there, there's these articles that have been coming out about, you know, um, oh, you know, people are in panic, the the MBA application volume's down. And, and it was down last year, right? Um, and there's also was a, another article about how uh, so many admissions directors have left their posts. I saw that recently, I think it was in Business Week or one of the, the big um, periodicals. And I'm thinking, wow, this is all, it's kind of old news. Like, but we're, you know, we're already in the new season. Volume is up for most of the schools I'm talking to. So I feel like it's just a little strange to be talking about stuff that happened. Like, I mean, in some cases, people who are leaving, like directors of admissions at Harvard or Stanford, they left, you know, this is like over a year ago. So um, in any event. But some, some of the news we are hearing that is current news is is the tech layoffs and the, the, yes. the issues relating to consulting. So on the employment report end, um, that's that has a lot more currency. Yeah, and actually, that's a perfect segue because we um, we reviewed. I knew that, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you were teeing it up. We we reviewed employment reports from Harvard, Stanford, and Tuck on the website. So what we do is, you know, we take the school's employment report, we kind of break it down, try to go apples to apples, so that if you read one of our articles on this, you can look at all of them and see. You know, we're always looking at the same facts and figures. And luckily, for the most part, schools are consistent about how they report on this stuff. Uh, so Harvard, one hundred seventy-five thousand dollar. Starting salary, very consistent with what we've seen from the other top schools. 73% of their graduating class was looking for work. Um, That's a lower figure than you see at some other programs. And that's because, you know, the rest of that group are either sponsored or they're starting their own company. And you see a little bit more of that at places like Harvard and and Stanford, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, In terms of where Harvard grads were going, 35% went into financial services, including private equity, venture capital, investment banking. 25% 25% into consulting. Uh, they sent 16% into tech. That's actually down from 19%. Um, so that was the main thing. It was just a little bit of a tick down in tech for Harvard. Uh, in terms of the like regional placement, 54% of the graduating class stayed in the Northeast. That's up from 47% last year. 16% went out West. That's down. It was 24% last year. So we're seeing this shift kind of to the back to the East Coast a little bit, um, you know, and down, as you said, tech is a little bit lower. Um, But otherwise, you know, pretty amazing starting salary. And and a lot of folks graduating from HBS are starting their own companies too. So that's kind of cool. Very good. Um, So with Stanford, I'll give you the same facts and figures. We've got a starting salary of 189,000. Uh, 62% of their graduating class were looking for work. That's usually, they're, they're almost always the low um, for, for all the top schools. That's a low number, right? It's only 62% looking for jobs. 25% of the graduating class are um, doing a startup. Okay, so that, that is a big number. And then in terms of those who are heading off into industry, um, you know, taking the more traditional jobs and stuff, 38% went into finance. That's up um, from 33%. 24% went into tech, that's down from 30%, and then 15% into consulting. Uh, just interesting to me, you know, I'll, I'll kind of wait for your comments on this, but interesting to me that, you know, we have some schools, um, you know, Yale, uh, they're not, the list is long, that are sending like 40 plus percent into consulting, but here at Stanford, it's only 15%. Um, so that's kind of noteworthy. 50% of Stanford grads stayed on the West Coast, that's down from 58%. And 31% went to the Northeast, and that's up from 26% last year. So what do you think of the Stanford numbers? 
Yeah, I mean, I look at both those, Harvard and Stanford, um, together because they are very interesting and they are different to the numbers we see for most of the rest of the M7 and top 16. Yeah. Um, in as much as the largest employer is financial services in terms of industry, that's typically on the buy side for these programs um, versus, you know, the rest of the M or the major others in the M seven and top sixteen is more when they talk about financial services. You're talking more about investment banking, so that we need to make sure we're clear in distinction there. Consulting is definitely significantly lower for these two programs um, than it is again for the majority of the M seven and top sixteen, which are generally ranging between 35 and sort of 45 percent um, and as we know um, we, we, we're a bit suspicious in terms of when those consultants are actually starting their work and so on and so forth <laughs> right um, so, so these numbers are, are, are really interesting um, probably we should compare them directly to Wharton too to see how they play out um, but they are different to the, the rest of the M7 and top 16. I was a little surprised at Harvard's average or median salary at 175. That's no different to other programs in the top, in the M7 group at least. Um, yeah. Stanford's makes more sense to me at 189. Um, but yeah, 62, only 62% looking for, for, for jobs um, and 73% at, at Harvard. Those are um, relative to all the other programs, which generally hover in the 90%. Um, very, very interesting. I mean, lots of entrepreneurs in, in those groups and so forth. Yeah, um, I but, think yeah, yeah. I, I think what's happening is that, you know, there's just not enough consulting jobs to push up the average. And in the case of Stanford, though, there probably are some pretty big fancy VC jobs or, yes. you know, even tech jobs that are paying really high to grab the cherry pick some of the best candidates out of Stanford that are raising that um, average. But yeah, it's interesting. The last one I'll give you for contrast is Tuck. Okay, so yeah. Tuck. $175,000 starting salary. So very, you know, exactly like HBS, right? Um, a little bit less than Stanford's 189, but still pretty darn good. Um, but the difference here is that 88% of Tuck's graduating class were looking for work. And remember, only 62% were looking for work at Stanford. So a little bit of a difference there. 3% of Tuck grads are starting their own company. So again, 25% at Stanford, 3% at Tuck. Uh, in terms of consulting, 46% of Tuck's graduating class who were looking for work went into consulting. That's up. That's actually down 1% from 47 last year. 23% uh, went into finance. That's up from 20. And let's see, 14% went into tech. That's actually up from 11. So this is the first school that I've seen growing the tech percentage, which is pretty impressive for Tuck. Uh, in terms of where Tuck graduates land, 53% landed in the Northeast. That's down from 59% last year. 14% uh, went out west. That's up from 12%. And then 10% went to the Midwest and the other um, regions are kind of unchanged at small small amounts, right? So I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting that Tuck, you know, great starting salary, um, you know, obviously impressive number of candidates going into consulting. But I thought it was kind of cool that they, they grew their tech portion and they sent a little bit more people to the west coast and that's like bucking the trend here that for all these other schools yeah i mean like you say they buck the trend a little bit their starting salary actually i think falls in line with their peer set it's more surprising to me that harvard's is at 175 too yeah um, but yeah they align with their peer set in terms of 46 percent going to consulting um, which is significantly higher again than harvard and stanford 
um, yeah. and, and only 23% going into financial services, which again would be predominantly investment banking in this case, um, which again would align more with their peer set. But yeah, they bought the trend on tech um, and also that ge- geography. And obviously tech sort of correlates very much with geography, right? So if you've got a higher tech number, you're going to have higher California number. Mm-hmm, um, right. So, so yeah, I mean, these are great numbers from all three three programs. Just super <laughs> yeah. interesting how Harvard and Stanford is different. Yeah, very, very fascinating. And we have a whole series of, of content on the site that compares schools head-to-head yeah. in all these different categories, you know, from industry to region. Um, that's a whole series. We're actually updating that for this year now that we've been begun to get a critical mass of data in from these schools. So you can read all that on our site. Uh, Alex, the last thing I'm going to say is just, you know, what Alex and I would love for Christmas, if you're tuning in, would be reviews of our podcast or ratings of our podcast. You can also, I just learned, you can leave comments on our podcast in Spotify. So each episode allows you to actually leave comments, which I didn't even know about. Um, So while you can't write a review on Spotify, you can leave comments. And I'll try to keep an eye on those if people have questions. You can always write to Alex and I at info at clearadmit.com. Use the subject line wiretaps. We are accepting season's greetings cards via email that I'll share with the team. So if you have anything you want to share uh, with anyone at Clear Admit, just send us a note. We're always happy to get listener mail. Alex, anything else before we dive into this week's candidates? No, let's kick on. All right. So this is wiretaps candidate number one. So our first candidate this week is applying to four schools, Columbia, Dartmouth, Emory, and Yale. They want to start school next fall, and I believe they're applying in round two. Um, They've been working at education and nonprofits for their career, which spans seven years to date. They want to get into or kind of stay in nonprofit or social impact after business school. They have a 3.4 GPA from a well-known private women's college for undergrad, and they also have a master's in public policy from an Ivy League school with a 3.7 GPA. Now, their GRE score is a 305, um, and they actually say in the comments, my GRE is low, I know that, but I did apply to all the top policy programs and got into those schools with scholarship, presumably on that same score. So um, pointing that out, uh, let's see. The other kind of details, there's a, there's a really great note this person provided us with a lot of kind of background detail, um, but they are non-traditional in that, you know, backgrounds in education and nonprofit. Um, they have a, they serve in a leadership capacity. They oversee a team that directly impacts hundreds of educators and thousands of students across the country. Um, this is a first generation black woman uh, and she applied, I guess, through the consortium. And so she's waiting still to hear back. So I guess she's already applied. And so it's not really round two. It's via the consortium. And she's hoping to kind of transition into DEI talent work and education and kind of leaned into the personal aspects of how that work um, affects her as a diverse candidate who works currently in education leadership. So, Alex, I know you had kind of an exchange with this candidate Um, particularly about the GRE score and stuff. But yeah, what do you make? I mean, this is kind of a really interesting non-traditional candidate with one kind of potentially glaring weakness in the GRE, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she she even calls this GRE score that shit old score (laughs) and my very subpar GRE. So she clearly knows that this is by far the weakest element of her overall profile which frankly looks really super strong and interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so in my mind, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on this candidate. It's like, you know, they could retake the GRE or they could choose not to. Um, and, you know, they might still get admitted to these programs with this GRE score. I mean, they might represent that 1% outlier at the low end of the range that because everything else is super strong, um, they, 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 they gain admission. And they've got interview invites um, to all the schools they applied, which includes at least one M7 because that's Columbia. Um, so, so schools are clearly interested in, in this candidate. But I know that they're going to be really sort of edgy about a 305 GRE, which I'm guessing the candidate took ahead of doing their public policy program. Um, So the GRE score itself is going to be quite old. So that's another strike against in my book, right? If you've got a low score and it's, two or three years old, i.e. you didn't retake it in that ensuing time, you had plenty of time to consider retaking it and stuff. I think that that's an extra potential um, mark against that they need to be wary of. I would really encourage this candidate to map out a plan to get the GRE retaken. Um, and even if it's, at, you know, maybe they've got a bit of a round two strategy, as they wait for their round one results, although they should be getting those round one results uh, this week, next week. Um, Develop a bit of a round two strategy, um, which may even be applied to more M7 or more top 16, um, and plan to retake the GRE. Now, if they can't do the due diligence in preparation in time for the deadlines for round two, I would still advise them to schedule a date later, i.e. maybe the end of January or whatever, so they have the time to prepare well, and include in their optional essay that they are planning this retake and they've got the date scheduled, etc., etc. Because this will send a strong signal to any round two um, um, schools that they're targeting But also, these round ones, they might end up on the wait list. And if they do end up on a wait list, they have to retake that GRE ground. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I I think it's interesting because I I fully believe this person could get into some of these schools, even with a low score, um, because it's like the only weakness in the file. And and they're otherwise, you know, going to be a really sought after candidate in terms of like having very non-traditional background, first generation, um, black, female. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, a lot of boxes that are ticked. And been very successful. So it's not just like, all right, you've checked these boxes, therefore you're more attractive. It's you've checked these boxes and you've been, or what appears to be really successful oh, in, yeah. in your career to date, yeah, the, had really good impact, good leadership, etc. Yeah, the, the details yeah. in the post that she provided yeah. are, I mean, it's pretty stunning in terms of like the leadership and, and all the activity. So I, yeah, there's no doubt. And that's why it's like, part of me is like, so maybe, maybe she will get in. Um, I do worry about a waitlist scenario for the reason you you described. I also kind of wonder, you know, what's the scholarship situation like and whether that's impacted. So again, you know, because if this person had come into this process, let's imagine they hadn't applied anywhere yet um, and they were thinking of applying and they had a 325 on the GRE 
um, I would be saying, oh, wow, this is like Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, you know, yeah. any, any name your top school. And, and you know, obviously they might, they're limited. They're, they're looking at consortium schools and not every school's in the consortium, I guess. But yeah, so I, I do feel like there's something being left on the table if they're not exploring a boost on that score. So in any event, as you said, we probably don't need to dwell on it too much. I mean, we'll see what happens. I mean, she's going to get feedback. She probably already, by the time she's listening to this, may have already had some feedback from some schools. So we'll see. I do want to wish her the best of luck. But I think, yeah, retaking the test could change things in terms of opening the door to some of the very elite schools or, you know, changing the scholarship figures that could be offered. So it's worth thinking about. Um, All right. So thanks to her for sharing. Let's move on, though, and talk about Wiretap's candidate number two. So our next candidate is also applying to start in the fall of 24. And this candidate has MIT Sloan, Oxford, Stanford, and Yale on the target list. Uh, Their pre-MBA career has been in a role of director of human resources um, they, it's actually a very interesting story, which we'll get into, um, p- post business school, they're thinking about entrepreneurship and that's because their roles before business school have been entrepreneurial, which we'll explain. GPA is a 3.3. Um, they actually have nine years of work experience and they want to, um, they want to land in sub-Saharan Africa after business school. That's where they are now. Um, and so one of the interesting things about this candidate who is yet to take the test, so they're working on that, um, is that. They are one of the key leaders responsible for launching a low-cost airline in West Africa during COVID-19, um, as well as you know securing multi-million dollar investment at a critical phase in this journey. Um, they bootstrapped the airline with some personal funds and um, you know have done a ton of stuff to get this airline off the ground. And the other wrinkle that I wanted to share is when it comes to MIT and Stanford, they're actually looking at the MSX programs um, I guess it's the MSX program at Stanford and then the Sloan Fellows program at MIT. So these are kind of one-year programs, and they mentioned that MIT doesn't um, require a test for that. It's a, you know they use your grades and things. So a little bit of a non-traditional candidate in terms of entrepreneurship, airline industry, looking at a mix of schools, mostly of the one-year variety, but not all of them. Um, and in some cases, more of the mid-career, like the Sloan Fellows program is more of a mid-career program. Uh, so yeah, Alex, there's a lot to digest here, and I know you exchanged with this candidate and asked them about their goals, and they talked about, you know, not necessarily staying with the airline that they've um, set up. I think they said that they were thinking about um, doing something else, like pivoting to explore entrepreneurship or a C-level post, and they said the airline business is quite stressful, <laughs> um, and even more so in certain jurisdictions due to political instability, et cetera. So, yeah, so what do you make of this? There's a yeah, lot to digest. I think you've got to be here. very ballsy to set up a low-budget airline in West Africa during COVID-19. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. crumbs, that's got to have been yeah. presented plenty and plenty really of hard. challenges um, and, and some great life lessons and so on and so forth. And it looks like they've done really, really well with what, what they've done. I mean, their experiences are going to be absolutely fantastic, I think. Um, so so I, I really like that. Yeah, it would be good if their long-term goal was to turn this airline into some some sort of sustainable like transportation system um, in, 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 in that region of the world, um, doing some really cool things or whatever it might be. Um, so they might want to think a little bit harder about that long-term goal and make sure it aligns with some of the experiences that they've had to date. And we always like... Um, 
um, or at least my personal preference is for folks that are coming from places like Sub-Saharan um, Africa, their long-term goal is to return to Sub-Saharan Africa to make that greater impact that they can make um, in that longer term than they would if they remained in the sort of um, USA or Western Europe or wherever they do their MBA. So hopefully they're, they're targeting a long-term return plan to, to, to do that. Um, so yeah, I think their work experience is going to be outstanding, Graham. It probably aligns well for these sort of MSX Sloan, Sloan Fellows programs. And I know you, you talked about London offering um, something similar that they, sh- they could also be be looking at. Um, but on the MBA side, you know, there might be um, some good options. They've listed Yale, um, for example. Maybe INSEAD, with, a, with it being a one-year program, might be um, attractive. I'm a little worried about the GMAT side of it, Graham, um, because they've got to take the GMAT. And they even articulated that not only don't they feel prepared, so they've obviously got to figure out a preparation plan, but they don't feel the GMAT is a true reflection of individuals' intellectual vitality. That doesn't matter what they feel, right? It's what (laughs) the ADCOM feels. So um, they don't want to have that sort of attitude, I guess, is is my point here. Uh, Yeah, there's lots of debate on the the, um, efficacy of, of these standardized tests, but lots of ADCOM will actually say it's a really good um, predictor and really vital to our admissions process. So all candidates should absolutely respect that. And, and I'm not saying this person is disrespectful, but I just want to call that out. Um, and yeah. and yet, do whatever they can to get their best GMAT score um, is, is really what it boils down to. It's a little bit like our previous candidate. Lots and lots of things to really love about this profile, but they're going to have to overcome this test score, Graham. Yeah, and I would say there's a higher risk here in the sense that, you know, with the first candidate, we have a 3-7 from an Ivy League public policy master's degree, right? And I think a, a, a 3-5 or whatever it was at a top liberal arts college, right? That's So those are known quantities to the admissions committee. This candidate's educated in probably in Western Africa. Um, they said they have kind of a B-plus average from undergrad, but that was, you know, nine years ago or whatever. They've been working for a while, right? So there's less kind of current evidence of academic aptitude. And, you know, we could have that debate, like you were saying, about whether the GMAT or the GRE is a, a, an apt, you know, kind of, is it, a, is it a good measure? But I can tell you, you know, Bruce Delmonico comes to mind because he was um, the one that did the the Q&A on our site this past week, and he's, you know, happens to work at one of the schools that this candidate has on their list, Yale. Um, and he's, you know, he and his team have said, look, the test is actually pretty important. Like it is the only way that we have to sort of measure intellectual ability across the applicant pool. Cause everyone attends different schools, different countries. I mean, everything's different. And, th- and this is the one kind of leveling mechanism. So yeah. And I, I do agree looking at one year um, MBA offerings, maybe in Europe, like an INSEAD. Uh, I mean, there, there are many programs out there from, you know, IMD, ESMT. And there, there are lots of programs where this person could probably find a spot um, that would be short duration and allow them to get back into the workforce. So yeah, it's something to think about. And I did recommend in my comments, yeah, London Business School is also offering the Sloan Fellows Program, which is for people who are a little bit older, um, like the MIT program. So they should probably consider that too. 
but yeah, I mean, a, a lot is going to hinge on like, they got to take the test. It sounds like one way or another and, and, and get a result and, and sort of plot, plot their course from there a little bit. Did, did I tell you we got someone in our village that did that MSX program at Stanford? Oh, wow. I, you might have a while ago, but yeah, that's yeah. a good, it's a good program. Yeah. I mean, and again, yeah. Yeah. She's super, super impressive individual. Yeah. So yeah. in any event, yeah. uh, yeah, so this person, I, I just feel like if I were an admissions officer, as excited as I would be about all the pretty incredible professional experiences they've had, I'd want to be assured on the academic side. And the only way that I'm going to be is really with a test. So yeah, they need to take the test and do as well as they can on it. Yeah. Um, I want to thank them for sharing their journey on, on the site. I, again, really impressive to start up an airline um, in those conditions during a pandemic, et cetera. So very cool stuff. Let's move on, though, and talk about Wiretaps candidate number three. So our final candidate for this week is actually targeting business school for the fall of 25. So they have a little bit of time on their hands. They have seven schools that are currently on their target list. And those schools are Carnegie Mellon, Cornell, Georgetown, Indiana, Michigan, Washington Foster, and UCLA Anderson. This candidate is currently a lead engineer at an OEM automotive company. Uh, Their post-target industry is tech or maybe consumer goods. They've taken the GMAT, they have a 690, and they have a 3.0 GPA from undergrad. They've been working for five years. They're actually located in Indiana. And they share the fact that they are a white US and Middle Eastern dual citizen. Uh, They also mentioned that, you know, they're thinking about the automotive industry and the way that it's kind of um, being transformed with electric vehicles. And so they want to pivot from like product engineering into product planning. And they're having trouble kind of breaking into that without an MBA or kind of a business background. So they think that given that they have an engineering background from undergrad, that going to get an MBA will be a, a powerful kind of combination. Um, they did earn that, as I said, that 3.0 GPA in mechanical engineering. And they've been struggling, they say, to get the GMAT past 690. They have a quant score of 44 and a verbal score of 40. And what's interesting is the verbal score is really high. I mean, in terms of like the percentile, I think it's like a 98 percentile or something quite good, but the math um, is only in the 40th percentile. So that's where the weakness is. Uh, They've got some outside activities, some pretty good accomplishments um, in terms of work. But Alex, you know, a couple of kind of glaring things, right? 3.0 GPA and a 690 on the GMAT, which are, you know, I mean, some of the schools on their list are more kind of top 25 schools. And so maybe those numbers play better there but what what's your take on this candidate yeah i mean that that's one one thing to 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 consider they're not aiming at the very very um top programs you know the your m7 type programs there are a couple in the top 16 mm-hmm. um or two or three in the top 16 top 20 and just a couple outside the top 20 so their profile might fit well you know assuming that they've got really strong sort of professional experience and um, and, and, you know, that's reflected with strong recommendations and, and so on and so forth. Um, obviously, their realisation of the transition of the industry um, to EVs is, 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 is critical. So talking about their goals, you know, regarding that transition, that, that would be very interesting too. I'd like to know a little bit more about what they do when they're not working. What are their hobbies and interests? Um, and, and so forth. It seems like they do a lot at work, and and they 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 sort of 
you know, not directly related to to um, to their career necessarily, but they're doing a lot of stuff at work. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to see what what they do when when they've got downtime and what sort of volunteer work um, would be interesting. Um, and maybe because they're they're applying next season, they could ratchet that side of it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, the big issue potentially is the combination of um, a six ninety G mat with a forty four quant score and a three point GPA. Um, yeah. So so that's going to um, create cause some pause, especially for some of the sort of top sixteen programs that they've got, they've got listed top 10 programs that they've got listed um and they're going to retake the gmat one more time really try to get that quant score up it's kind of unusual for an engineer to have a lower quant score like that mm-hmm. um in terms of the percentile of, of, of that score so um do whatever they can to um ratchet up the gmat even if it's 10 20 points they want to get the gmat taken before the new format come becomes required um which you know that's due to their work commitments i think um Mm -hmm. early next year um they were saying but yeah anything that they can do about this gmat is going to have pretty big impact i think graham yeah i mean what's cool is that their verbal score is fantastic so they can maintain that and just add I mean, if they were to add like a handful of points to their quant, they would suddenly be well into the 700s. And, you know, even if the quant score remains a little weak, at least from a number side, the schools are going to say, well, okay, this person's not, you know, dragging down our average or anything. And, and I and I do think that they, they can't go back and redo their mechanical engineering GPA, which is a bit low, but getting a solid test score would be like, hey, you know, look, I, I went to a, you know, went to a pretty rigorous undergrad in terms of the major I chose. They've had success at work. I agree their extracurriculars do often revolve around work, like there's, you know, doing diversity initiatives at work, things like that in their spare time. So it would be good to know more about what makes this person tick and how they're unique. But, you know, otherwise, I mean, they have, you know, good work experience, solid career goals. And, you know, some of the schools on their list, I, I think, would be happy to welcome them. But I, I do think that it'll be a lot easier if they can, you know, boost that test score. So I would buckle down. Um, I don't know that I'd be as fearful of the new GMAT as, as it sounds. I mean, they're kind of wanting to just take the, the one that they know, I guess. But the new test is a bit easier in terms of it being shorter. You can pace yourself, go in the order that you want. Um, but in any event. Um, so I, I hope this person lands on their feet. Again, they do have a nice range of programs on the list. And so I think that, you know, they'll land somewhere, but it, it'll increase their odds if they can boost that score. Yeah, just not being able to, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I would say as they think about that, one of the things that jumped out at me is they mentioned they're, you know, white male working in automotive and stuff, but they also have Middle Eastern, um, they're of Middle Eastern descent and they have a passport from a Middle Eastern country. And so I think that's another potential attribute or point of interest. And so to the extent that any of their outside interests or activities maybe revolve around that, that could be interesting too, to kind of highlight, um, cause it'll be a differentiator. So in any event, um, I want to wish them the best of luck and thank them for sharing their profile with us. Uh, Alex, we're, <laughs> it's been a crazy week next 
next week is, you know, the, the, week, the days ahead are going to be continue to be crazy, but we'll all deserve a good rest over the holidays, except for those of you who are going to be writing <laughs> essays, I guess. But in any event, thanks, Alex, for picking these out. And uh, we'll do it again next week. Very good. Very good. Stay safe, everyone. Take care.